Well, good morning, church. How are we? One of you is okay. What about the rest of you? Good morning, church. How are we? So glad to see all of you here with us this morning. And I just love the fact that Tiffany was so excited to teach kids lesson that she was getting ready to play the video while Caden was still singing, ready to go upstairs and have kids lesson. That was, that was great. Uh, so glad that you guys are here. And we're going to be in week two of our series, Living as a Remnant. And so hopefully last week you enjoyed getting it kind of the big idea, the setup. And it's one of those, those themes that run all the way through scripture. So it can be a massive thing we could study. We're going to do this through in five weeks and we're looking at some rhythms of life, some things that we do in order to live as a faithful remnant, to live as God's people in a world that's far from him. So before we dive in, I'm just going to pray for us once more and then we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for our time to be in your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have just to, to just hear your word taught and hear your word proclaimed. God, thank you that we can read it together. God, that we can sing it in song to one another and with one another. Lord, we're just grateful for your word. We thank you for our time together to be with brothers and sisters and just learn to be more like you. Lord, it's our prayer that, that we don't leave here unchanged this morning. God, that our lives would be transformed by the power of your word. And God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be glorifying to you. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. Jesus, Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, Tiffany and I were, were back in the States, and we were back in my hometown. And when I, where I grew up is a, a town right on the water. So there's like a river, and there's a, a boardwalk around the river. And, and so we were going to the visitor center that leads to the boardwalk, and we were getting ready to go for a run. So we were going to go run around the boardwalk, run through town, finish on the boardwalk by the water. And as we're getting out of the car and getting ready to go for a run, this lad comes up to me, and he just starts talking to me. And he starts telling me everything that you can do in the town of Columbia that I grew up in. It took him all of 13 seconds. But he goes and he's telling me all these things. He's like, oh, did you know that you can go fishing over here? Do you know you can buy, you can catch fish here? And then they go on to tell me, hey, if you go down the street, there's this hardware store that you can go to. You can buy a fishing pole, a cane pole. Do you know what that is? And he's just walking me all through this time. And I'm just like, dude, I am from here. Like, I have lived 20 years of my life here. If I want to go fishing, I'm not going to go buy a cane pole. I'm going to go call my dad and get on his boat and go out in the water. And I'm going to go fishing here. But it was just that moment. He was like, you don't seem like you're from here. You don't seem like it anymore. And I felt like here I was in my hometown, a place that I lived over 20 years of my life. I felt like a foreigner. I felt like, an, like I was in exile. And then I come to Ireland. And I don't know if you guys know this. I don't live. I'm not from here. Like, I don't know. Surprise, right? Like, I'm not from here. My, my, my accent is not Irish, and, and I can't read Irish names half the time. Like, I'm not from here. But I feel at home here. But when people talk to me, they, they're not like, oh, you must be from here. No, they're like, oh, where are you from in America? Almost every single conversation that I have with people. And like, I have this moment too, as even though we've lived here like seven years, like when people start having that, that situation where they like, they realize I'm not from here, then they start trying to like dumb things down for me, but they're like, oh yeah, you're the stupid American. Oh, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, you don't understand kilometers. Let me, let me think miles for you. Or, or if we're asking directions and I'm just like, buddy, I can tell you how far a kilometer is because I run every day. I can tell you exactly how many steps I need to get that kilometer. And then I start getting really defensive in a weird kind of passive way. Like I'll start bringing out 
all of my Irish slang, or I'll start subconsciously start speaking in an accent. I didn't even realize I did this until Tiffany later told me like, do you realize that you do this? And I'm like, no, I had no clue. But it's like that, it's that feeling of like, just not really belonging, right? Like when I go to America, I, I'm more foreign there than I do here. But the reality is I'm, I'm not from here. I'm a foreigner here too. And it's just this weird, weird tension. And as followers of Jesus, man, we get that, don't we? We feel that deep down inside of us. When we look at our lives and we look at the way that we do things, like our lives, it just makes us feel like we're, we're foreigners. Like just think about a Sunday morning. Think about what's different in our lives, in the world around us. We're not at a GAA pitch. We're not going to play soccer right now. We're not lying in. We're not doing all these different things that our world around us are doing. We're, we're here. We're committed. And it seems a little bit weird to the world around us. Think about maybe some of your rhythms in life. I mean, you talk to people and you meet with people and you talk about how you spend time in prayer or you spend time reading the word or you... Or you even give generously to the church. And people are like, why would you do that? You could be living off much more. You could have a whole lot more if you didn't give sacrificially and generously. Or maybe there's this idea that Stephen talked about last week of the Sabbath, where we actually just stop one day every week to rest, to pause, to breathe, to disconnect from the world. And man, as you do those things, like it seems weird. People around you are like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Why are you being lazy and wasting one day a week? And this is a feeling that we have, right? We feel this deep inside of us. And this idea, though, it is not foreign to the Bible. This is a common theme through the Bible. The biblical word for this is it's exile. It's the biblical word. Stephen set up 1 Peter chapter 1 last week. This idea where Peter says, writing to the foreigners in the exiles living here, except they were probably from there, except they were probably born there. And you're calling them a foreigner, you're calling me an exile. And so it's this idea of we live a life and our lives look completely different than the world around us. And we feel like our rhythms of life, the way that we live, it just seems so counter to our world that it seems like we are in exile. And so the question for us that we're wrestling with in this series isn't as much to identify that because I think we feel that. Maybe we don't have a word for it, but we feel that tension, right? We feel like when we're with our friends that our lives are just different and just seems a little odd and a little different. So it's not necessarily to understand that we are in exile, but to, to discuss and figure out how, like, how, how do we live in this reality? First thing we got to do, man, we got to acknowledge it. We got to acknowledge that this is the reality. This week I was, I was reading an article about the rise, rise of divorce over the last few months. And, and I'll, I'm going to preface this by saying it's an article written by a celebrity divorce attorney. I don't typically read those articles or put a whole lot of stock in them, but one of the things that they've concluded is they've looked at the research and there has been a strong rise of divorce, especially being filed by women. And the reasons that they're pointing to are three things. One, the Barbie movie. Two, the Taylor Swift concert. And three, the Beyonce concerts. Now, believe it or not, I don't, I don't know. But here's what they're finding is like people who have gone to those concerts, people who have seen that film, like there's this desire in them, like I don't need no man. And that idea is beginning to happen. Now, whether or not that's true or not, there, there needs to be many, many more years of research than that. But here's we're reading that. As I was reading that research, I was just kind of laughing. I was like, can that really be true? I don't know. But here's what it reminds me of is this. 
is culture has an undeniable pull on us. We can't deny that. We cannot deny the fact that culture has a pull, a tugging at us. If you have tried to live faithfully for Jesus in a world that doesn't, like you feel that, right? Like this world, this culture trying to pull you away from that. Now, whether we give into it or not is a different story, but it is, it is there. And it's important for us to acknowledge it, to realize it, to name it, and to be prepared for it. And this is the purpose of the series. It's like so that we don't get just pulled into this. That we don't just get dragged off into this way that, of living that is counterculture to what God wants us to do. We don't just get dragged away from living the way that, as a faithful exile. and we, we just start living mindlessly. That's not what we want. Because the reality is, man, Satan would love nothing more than for us as followers of Jesus just to kind of be swept away by our culture. Just kind of dive in, just not really, maybe not even really like purposefully, just mindlessly going on with our lives, not really focusing on things that would happen, you know, just kind of doing life. Jesus speaks to this reality and in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching about the coming of the kingdom. And if we pick up in Luke 17, verse 26, he says this, he says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Verse 27, in those days, people enjoyed banquets and parties, weddings, right up to the time Noah entered his boat, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The world will be as it was in the days of Lot's. Lot. People went on their daily business, eating, drinking, buying, selling, farming, building, until the morning Lot left Sodom, and the fire of sulfur rained down from heaven to destroy it all. Yes, it was business as usual right up to the day until the Son of Man is revealed. Here's this idea. There's just this moment of just going on and just, just doing life, just doing these things. Like, who doesn't love a good wedding, right? Like, I love a good wedding. Who doesn't love a good banquet? There's nothing wrong with banquets. Like, you put me in a room with a lot of food and a lot of people, like, I am going to thrive. I love those situations, right? Like, these aren't bad things, right? Getting married, like, these are great things. These are the things that they're talking about. The problem is, is there's just buying into these Living life without much consideration for what is happening around them. And here's what we know to be true. In the days of Noah, the people were becoming more and more and more corrupt. In the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, those places were becoming more and more corrupt. This is what happens when we don't live intentionally, in, lean intentionally into Jesus and in his word. We don't get better and better. We get worse and worse. And this is what we see happening here. Man, they're just, they're just caught up, Right? So the point of the series isn't to, to point out the, the realization that we are in exile. Like, we feel that. But rather, the point of the series is how do we not get sucked in to that reality? How do we live faithfully in the, in the midst of this? How do we live faithfully? How do we operate under the reality that we are in exile? So one of the things that we're going to do in order to do this, so our, this is our premise today, in this, this age of exile, we have to live consciously and we have to develop muscles of cultural discernment we're going to develop muscle memory of cultural discernment and so normally when when we see culture 
as followers of Jesus, usually there's, there's one of two options that we tend to do. And Stephen talked about this last week briefly. Option number one is we totally reject the culture, right? We go and we hide away. We're like, okay, I'm never going to have any, anything to do with that part of the culture. That's option number one. Option number two is we just soak it all in, right? We just go and we just take it all. It's like, oh, this is great. Like, and, and so like, those are the, usually the two options. But for us as followers of Jesus, it's how do we live in the tension? Not completely rejecting culture, but not completely accepting culture. How do we walk in the middle of this? How do we balance the two? How do we live faithfully in a culture without completely rejecting everything that some of the things might not be bad? Like, how do we do that? How do we live in that tension? And one of the things I want to make sure that we see is our goal isn't just to survive as a remnant. Our goal is to thrive. Don't miss that. Our goal isn't just to hide out and wait for the day when Jesus comes back and we, just, we survive this, this feeling of exile. That's not our goal. No, our goal is, is to thrive. Our goal is to thrive as a faithful remnant. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, there are many people who, who love Jeremiah 29 because there's a beautiful passage in Jeremiah 29, 11. I have plans for you, says the Lord. plans to give you hope in a future. Beautiful passage, taken a bit out of context, but a beautiful passage nonetheless. But the, one of the reasons I love Jeremiah 29 is what is actually said before that. So in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7, this is what it says. The God of Israel says to all the captives, he had exiled to Babylon for Jerusalem. So God is speaking to people in literal exile. They've been ripped from their homes, taken to Babylon in exile. And God speaks this in verse four or verse five. Build homes, plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses so that they may, you may have grand, many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Here's the idea. We don't just sit back and we long for the days long ago. We don't just sit back and wish for the good old days where, where shops were closed on Sunday and everyone went to church and, and we just we just sit back and like, oh, if we were just back to those days, everything would be fine. That's not what we do. No, we, we actively live for Jesus in the midst of exile. We live as a remnant of deeply loved people called by God to be his hands and feet through the world around us. This passage says we seek the shalom, the well-being, the peace, and the prosperity of the world in which we are living. Shouldn't that, well, shouldn't that be what we're about Shouldn't that be what we, are, what we are on mission for, is to seek the well-being of the world around us? Like, just think about this for a second. Like, Moy Cullen should be a better village, should be a better place because we are here. Because we are, are loving people the way that Jesus has called us to love people. Roscajo, where I'm from, where I live. It should be a better place because me and my family are there and we are loving our neighbors the way that Jesus has called us to. You know, you fill in the blank, the Hishka, Uktarard, like wherever you may be, fill in the blank. Like it should be a better place because we are there as followers of Jesus. We should be seeking the well-being. We should be loving people the way that Jesus did. And it begins to look like little pockets of heaven. And so our goal is not just to, to hide away in our house and, and hope and wait for, 
for the fire to come down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Like our, our goal is to live as a faithful remnant, as a faithful exile, to actually thrive in the midst of this. So what tools can we use? What tool can we use? Here's the tool today we're going to talk about. It's the Bible. This is the tool that we're going to talk about. Living as a faithful remnant is we are going to be people of the scriptures. We are going to be people who, who navigate our world and our culture through the lens of scripture. So how? How do we survive in exile? If we we're going to open up the scriptures, one of the best examples for us of how one of the best examples, one of the best people to look at of how he lived in this would be, who do you think? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus is a great example for us to look and see how he lived in a complex world. So if you have your Bible, flip to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is getting ready. Well, before Matthew 4, Jesus goes and he is he's baptized by John the Baptist. And everything is good for about... A minute. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus is led off into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. So immediately, like as we read this passage, we see the word wilderness in 40 days. So that should clue us into another story that we see in the book of the Old Testament. Think about another group of people that went into the wilderness for the, with the number 40. It's the Israelites, right? They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They mess up. They don't live faithfully to God and his commands and his call. Jesus does. And he lives differently. He does the things that Israel was failed to do. And so let's see, how does Jesus pass the test? How does Jesus do this differently? Let's pick up in verse 3, Matthew chapter 4. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the high city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and he will hold you up when with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel before me and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came to take care of Jesus. Now let's notice, every single time Jesus faces the temptation, what does he do? He answers with the scriptures. Every single time he faces a, a question, any time he is tempted, he opens up, doesn't open up, he doesn't like, probably doesn't have parchment with him there, but he, he knows it in his mind and he quotes the scriptures. He's able to pull it out so that when this counter narrative, when this counter reality is being offered to him, when this pull for food is going on, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to trust God to sustain me and God to fulfill me. When Satan is offering him all the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is saying, no, I'm not buying into that because I know the truth of the scriptures. And like, just think about for Jesus, like how would he be able to, to quote these scriptures, right? 
He hasn't just read them one time. Jesus has meditated on these. He has brought them deep into his soul. He has taken the time to know them so that when the temptation came, when the time came, Jesus was able to just to speak them. He was able to, to say these things when, when the time came. Like for us, when moments of temptation come in our lives, like that's going to be the hard times. And so when we have these moments that come up, when we're, when, we're, when we're tempted to walk in a different way than what God wants us to, we dig down to these scriptures and we, we believe them and we know them. And here's what I want to make sure we understand. Is Jesus didn't just know or quote the scriptures. He believed them. And I think there's a really important distinction that happens here. Jesus doesn't just know the scriptures. He doesn't just quote the scriptures. He believes them. Because in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says to Jesus about Jesus, he had fasted for 40 days and he was very hungry. I think that's like the understatement of all the Bible, right? You, you think? Very hungry? And so when Satan comes and, and says, hey, turn these bread, turn these stones into bread, like, if Jesus didn't believe that God was going to be sustainer for him, what's going to happen? If Jesus just knew this, but he didn't truly believe it, it had moved from his head to his heart. It had transformed everything in him. Because here's the reality. Like, we have to be people who know the scriptures, yes, but we've got to be people who believe the scriptures. Because there are going to be things in the scriptures that are really difficult for us. There are going to be things where maybe, maybe think about this idea of being generous, living a generous life. Like if we just know that that's a thing, but we don't believe that God is going to bless us because of that, it's going to be really hard to be generous. Or, or think about this idea of like loving your neighbor. Like that can be a really hard thing to do because your neighbor is up all night playing music or they're being really, really loud and annoying. And it's going to be really hard for me to love my neighbor. And so I don't just know that I'm supposed to do that. I believe the truth of the scriptures that God will give me the strength to love my neighbor. We, we talk about this one often, forgiveness. Like it's hard to forgive people. It's a hard thing to do. And Jesus is calling us to this. Like it's difficult. It's painful. It's hard. But we cling to the truth of the scriptures. We believe that God will do what he says he's going to do. We believe for, that it's better, that we need to forgive other people. So we don't just be people, we're not just people who know the scriptures. We're people who believe the scriptures. The time in my life that this came really, really evident was when our, when our daughter Ava was born. And so we went in and, and go, was going to like, so Tiffany wasn't progressing. And, and so they induced her. And so we're going through this. We were in at the hospital at 8 a.m. in the morning. We got up at like 6 and got into the hospital. And like we go through the entire, entire day and the night and things just aren't progressing very well. And so we get to a, about 10 o'clock in the morning the next day. It's been about 30 hours since either of us have slept. And we're just in that moment and then like, there's just like a tension in the room that starts to change. Like they, they go and they're testing Tiffany's bloods. They're testing her, taking her blood pressure. They're, they're doing her thing. And there's like, okay, there's this, you're, you have a fever. Your fever is spiking really high. They're checking Ava. They're like, she's got a fever. Like, and and there's that, in that moment, like there is a strong tension in the room. What went from me, Tiffany, and a midwife turned into 15 doctors in the room, people talking about emergency sections. And like, they weren't saying that this was life and death, but you kind of got the feel like this was, this was scary. 
And like they're, they're rushing Tiffany up. They like she's not even all the way numb when they're getting ready to do this section. And like this is just like this moment is terrifying. And like you just know, like you can just feel like the life of my child is hanging in the balance here. And like they didn't say that, but like you could just read it on every single person's face. And here I am. I am always strong in my emotions. If you guys know me, right? Like no, I'm like I'm a mess at this point. It's been 30 plus hours that I've slept, and I'm rush. We're rushing up to the theater to for her to have this section, and then they tell you, hey, you've got to wait out here in the hall. And they go and they roll my my wife and my my unborn child into the theater, and I'm just sitting out here in this hall. And I'm sure, like, if it wasn't a section, they probably would have let me know, like, hey, this is the, this is the thing. But here, we're in this moment. They take my child and my wife, and, and I'm sitting out there for 45 minutes. Seemed like 45 hours. And all I'm doing is I'm just crying. I'm just, like, worried. I'm afraid. I'm scared for my child. I'm scared for my wife. I'm just in this moment. Like, I'm just terrified. And, and here I am in this moment. It's like, all I want is my dad to be there to wrap me in a hug and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. My dad's 3,000 miles away. And I just remember in this moment, I was so overwhelmed with, with pain and sadness and fear, I couldn't even pray. Like, here I am, I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I can't even find the words to say in my prayer. And so I get, I get out my phone, and I just I turn on a song. It's a song, Oh God. And, like, it's a song that's done by citizens, and the modern posts do it, too. We've sung it here at church time to time. And the lyrics of that song just simply go something like this. In the valley, you are there. In the darkness, you are there. In your weeping, you are there. And when you're lonely, you are there. And the chorus goes, oh, God, you've never left my side. And in that moment, what came to my heart, what came to my mind, was the promises of the scripture that I have a God who was there. In that moment, I was reminded that I had a God who would never leave me or forsake me. I remembered in that moment that I had a God who, even though I was terrified, even though my earthly father couldn't be there with me to wrap me in a hug, I had a heavenly father who was there with me through it all. That's what I was reminded of in the truth of the scripture. And I was just in that moment feeling this terrible, okay, now I'm experiencing, I'm feeling God. And now there's my wife who's going through the same thing and she's afraid. And I just remember walking into that hospital room, finally getting to be beside Tiffany. And I come to find out that the lady sitting beside her head, the lady who was doing the the anesthesia, she went to Discovery Church. And she had been sitting there with my scared wife telling her the scriptures, praying with her, like that moment, like, and it was in that moment, I was like, that is the most I've ever felt the closeness of the father, because it was in that moment, the only thing I could do was cling to the hope of the scriptures, and now, like, Ava's great, it's fine, like, everything's good, I don't, I don't always tell emotional stories, but, but here's this moment, like, and even when we brought her home, like, Ava didn't really sleep, still really doesn't, but, like, in that moment, like, when she was a kid for about the first six months, she'd wake up, be awake for two hours, sleep for two hours, wake up two hours. And I just remember for six months of her life, walking up and down the hall, singing, oh God, you never leave my side to her time and time again, because it was in that moment that the scriptures moved from here to here. It was in that moment that I truly believe the truth of the scriptures. And I knew that they were there. And I knew that God was with us. And so what was that? It's muscle memory. 
It was years of reading the scriptures. It was years of listening to the scriptures. It was years of taking it in so that when the moment came, there was a, a, a muscle that was ready to go, a spiritual muscle that was developed. And this is what we're looking for. As we're followers of Jesus, we are developing these spiritual muscles so that we can be people, that when those moments come, when temptation comes, whether it's something scary, something intense, or just a, a lure of sin, we can be ready, we can be able to quote the scriptures. There's a beautiful example of this in the Old Testament. It's these four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you know their stories. Like, they're pretty famous for Daniel and the lion's den, a huge moment where he refuses to, to pray to anyone but God and gets thrown into the lion's den, and Daniel survives. Yay, everyone cheers. It's a great story. It's in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 3, we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a, builds a tower, uh, an idol for people to bow down and worship, and these three guys are like, nope, not a chance. And, and the, the punishment of that is if they don't, they're going to be thrown into the, the blazing furnace, the fiery furnace. And then they get thrown in there and they, not even a hair is singed. They live through this fiery furnace. And like maybe we read those stories, we're like, that's what I want, right? I want those huge, I want those big moments. But there is a moment in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story that sets them on the trajectory for all of this long before the fiery furnace, long before the lion's den. And it's in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine that was given to him by the king. <coughs> he was determined <clears throat> not to eat the food that would defile him. He was determined not to eat the food that was against what God had called him to do. And it's in that moment, this, the great victory, it was won in a small area. Because it was in that single moment where he decides that he's not going to do this. Like there's not stories written about like <clears throat> us not eating the royal food. But it is in that moment of faith that he decided, this is what I'm going to do. And really, if we read through that story, not eating the royal food, it's not nearly as exciting as living through a, a lion's den. It's not nearly as exciting as living through a fiery furnace. But it's those muscle memories that we start from the very beginning. We're buying into these things. This is, this is what it looks like. Not only do we have a willingness to die for Christ, but for us, it's this willingness to live for him day in, day out, to be people of the scriptures every single day, being people who, who are buying into the truths of, of the scriptures, of the truths of the word, not giving in to, to the things, the small things, because great victories are won in small areas. And in Daniel's story, there's this little line that's said of Daniel three different times in chapter 6. It's the God that you serve faithfully or consistently. It's, they knew. Like Daniel had been doing this from the very beginning. And so for us, as we walk through, as we are this remnant, this people of God, how do we live? What do we, what do, we do? What I want to do is I want to flip open the scriptures to, to Psalm 119. We're going to spend a little time studying Psalm 119. Now, if you know, like Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible, chapter in the Bible. We're not going to study all 176 verses. Don't worry, we're not going to be here until next Sunday. We're going to study about eight of them, okay? So take a breath. It's okay. Like if you, so Psalm 119 is where we're going to be. And what Psalm 119 is, is it's really this beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a person who 
studies the scriptures, but also who loves the scriptures. Someone who loves the word of God. So Psalm 119, we'll start in verses 1 and 2. It goes like this. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with their hearts. I don't want us to miss the very first word that it says. Joyful. Joyful are people who live in integrity. Because we have a counter narrative in our world that says the only way to be joyful is if we engage in things that are, that are, that are not of God. Our world says, like, you've got to have some of this. You've got to get some of this. You've got to have more of that. And like, oh, to live for God, that's restrictive. That's, that's no fun. And the reality is what the scriptures are telling us is, is we can be joyful if we are people who are living the way that God has for us. The scriptures aren't, re, aren't, just, aren't restrictive. They're, they're actually life-giving. They show us how life works best. They show us how we can truly have joy in our lives. So let's, let's slide down to verses 9 through 16. I just want to set up to start with that we are the scriptures and in living through them can be joy. We're just going to walk through some of these first five verses and we'll do a couple of chunks together. So verse 9, how can a person stay, young person stay pure by obeying your word? I think we can also add older person. Too. How can an older person, a young person, middle-aged person, how can we stay pure? By obeying your word. And this is the question that we're asking in this series, is, is how can we live for God in a world far from him? How can we live for God in a world far from him? This passage gives us the answer. How? By obeying the word of God. How, do, how can we be people who obey we have, to, we have to know. We have to know the words. We have to be reading the scriptures if we're going to be people who obey. I mean, if we think about this, we do not live in a world that values purity. We do not live in a world that values being morally set apart. We do not live in a world that values being holy. Like, that's just not the world in which we live. And so how can we live in that way? We live by obeying the words of the scriptures. We are people who have spent time reading the scriptures. We obey them. We do what they say. I don't know if you guys have ever had one of these moments. You ever played a game for ages and then you go to play that game with someone else and you've come to find out that you've been playing it wrong all these years because they actually read the instructions and maybe you kind of read them, but you kind of made up your own. Anybody had one of those moments? And like, you're like, wait, that, that's, not, that's, not what it, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then maybe, I, I've never done this. Other people, sure, start arguing. No, this is the way it's supposed to be. And then they open up the, the rule instruction. Like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Tiffany, you taught me wrong. Or whatever it may be, right? Like, you ever had one of those moments? Let me just say, you ever had one of those moments spiritually? Where you thought this is the way something's was supposed to be? And maybe you're having a conversation with someone and they're like, well, actually... If we read the scripture here, this is what it looks like. And you're like, huh. And we have one of two choices. We either say, well, that, that, that's, that's not true. This is, all, this is what I've been taught. This is, what, this is what my wife told me, so this must be true. Or we can open up the pages of the scriptures and we can see, hey, maybe this is actually, maybe this is actually true, right? Maybe we've, we begin to, to look for these things. And so we say this often. And just to say it again, as a church, we value your questions. 
We value your thoughts. Like if we say something, don't just be like, well, Luke said it, Stephen said it, Nick said it. It it must be perfectly true. Like we're going to try our best to be true to the scriptures. But guess what? The Bible is without error. We are not. And so we want to go and we want to look through the pages of the scriptures and and make sure we're going to verify that the rules of the game is correct, that we're playing the way that we're supposed to. We've got to know the word. We've got to, to be able to obey it. We've got to know it. Look at verse 10. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've tried hard to find you. The beautiful beauty of the scriptures is if we try to find God, we will. Not because we are looking super hard for him, but because he has been pursuing us from the very beginning. And so we turn, we look to him, we will find him. I want us to look at the second part of this statement. Don't let me wander from your commands. Can I just ask you, when's the last time you asked God not to let you wander from his commands? When's the last time that you prayed that? Because I know in my own life that more often my, my thought isn't, God, don't let me water, wander from your command. Sometimes my thought is, God, can I get away with this just this one time? Can it be okay? That, I know you said that, that I need to do that, but oh, I just want to eat a little bit more. I know you said I shouldn't, but, or, or God, I know that you said that, that I, need to, I need to give generously, but like, they're Supermax and that looks good. And I, Supermax never looks good, but you know, for this analogy, right? But I think all too often our question isn't, God, help me. How can you help me to stay on your command? It's more like, okay, how can I get away with this once? But what if we change the way we pray? What if we ask God, hey, keep me on your command, your, keep me to following your commands. Don't let me wander from them. Be there for me. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does Jesus quote the scriptures when there's temptation? He has hidden the word in, our, in his heart. Here's the reality. Okay, I don't think I have this in the note. Sorry. Here's the reality. Our only hope to withstand sin is by saturating ourselves with the scripture. Our only hope to be able to withstand sin is to saturate our lives with the truth of the scriptures, to hide them in our hearts. Because here's the reality. Our goal for studying the scriptures is not just more information. It's more love. James 1, 12, or 22 talks about how we don't want to be merely people who, who hear the word and deceive ourselves. We do what it says. That's what we want to do. We want to be people who have hidden the word in our heart so that I might not sin against you. If you desire not to sin against God, the recipe for that is to hide the word, God's word in our heart. As we begin to become more and more like him, he starts to shape our desires. Our, our lives begin to change. The fun, fun word of this is sanctification. Becoming more and more like God, loving God more, sinning less. So how? How do we hide God's word in our heart? Let's read the next few verses. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees. I will not forget your word. So what do we do? How do we hide God's word in our heart? We praise. 
we recite the words. We do this every single Sunday together. We recite out loud the words of the scriptures. We study, we reflect, we, we delight, we don't forget. That's, that's how. And I don't want us to miss in verse 13, there's a little statement here that I want to make sure, I want to make sure we don't miss. It says, I have recited aloud, what? You guys catch that? All the regulations you have given to us. And I'll be really honest, that word all is really hard, right? Because what does all mean? All, right? It's not just saying, okay, God, I'll recite these commands out loud. I'm fine with these, the ones that talk about like me getting your goodness or your grace. Like I'd love to recite those, the ones that talk about me doing these things differently. No thanks. No, when we want to be people of the scriptures, we are taking in the whole scripture. We are not just saying, okay, this is, this, is what, this is what I want. This is what he wants. Like we have to take in all the scripture. And if we come across something in the scripture that we don't like or that offends us, we have to operate under the assumption that I'm the one that's wrong, not the scriptures. Right? And so we're taking in all of the scripture. And so we want to be people of the scriptures. People who are studying, people who are delighting, people are reflecting, people who are reciting these scriptures. So maybe for you, this would be a new principle, a new practice of reading through the scriptures together or reading through your scriptures at all. And I want to just give us three keys, three helpful things for us as a, as a body of believers when it comes to study of the Bible. So these are just simply three keys for Bible study. Key number one, application over information. This one is hard for me because I am a self-proclaimed Bible nerd. I love all the information. Give it all to me, right? Let's open up the fire hydrant and let's just drink it all in. Information is really good. It's great. But our goal isn't just to know what Jesus did. Our, our goal is to do what Jesus did. Our goal is to be people who are living out the scriptures. And so as we read through the scriptures, our only concern should not be like, give me all the information, but more like, how can I live this out practically? How can I love my neighbor better? How can I love my wife better? How can I love my kids better? Because I'm, I'm reading through these scriptures. So key number one is application over information. Key number two is facts over feelings. This was a hard one. We live in a culture that talks that our feelings are most important, but the reality is we're going to trust the authority of Scripture over what our culture says, over what, what, we, what feels right to us. The Bible is without error. We are not. And so we're, we're going to trust the truth of the Scriptures. We're going to trust the, the, them as fact. We're going to believe them and not just tr not trust our feelings. Here's the final one. Public over private. It is really, really good for you to sit in your own, on your own and read the scriptures. I would highly recommend you do that. Like, really, you should, you should do it. Maybe not right now, but we should definitely be people who privately read the scriptures. However, we need to be with a group of people that we can be sharing what we're learning. Because here's what I know to be true about myself, is when I'm just privately reading the scriptures, there may be things that, that I'm like, oh, this must be what the scripture is saying. And then like, I could go off some crazy idea, the crazy way. I need collectively, I need people to kind of be like, hey, I was reading this. What do you think about that? Does that seem right? 
And sometimes there are people who can come alongside me and it's like, okay, Luke, have you, have you considered X, Y, and Z? Have you looked at this passage? And what ends up happening sometimes is we take away the harmony of the scriptures. We take one verse in isolation and we take out, leave all the rest of them. Or we, we make it mean something that historically it was never supposed to mean. And so we, we can read our scriptures together and we should, but we also need each other. We need community. We need one another to be walking through the scriptures together. Community groups are a great place for this. Having one-on-one Bible studies with each other is a great place for this. Just having a WhatsApp group where maybe you can just do a voice message like, hey, I was reading this in the scriptures. Have you thought about this before? And just kind of walking with this with one another because this is not a spectator sport. This is not a, a, a 1v1. This is not a one-person sport. We're collectively community. We are together. <coughs> So as we, as we figure out, like, why and how do we use these, these muscles that we're developing from the scriptures? Hebrews chapter 4 is a really helpful passage for us. It talks, about, it talks about the power of the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. Here's here's the cool thing about the Bible, is we don't just read the Bible. The Bible begins to read us. It begins to expose some things in us. And as we read ourselves into the scriptures, like, don't always put yourself in the, the place of the hero. Don't always put yourself in like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm the hero of the story. But just kind of walking through and helps us read ourselves into the scriptures because the Bible begins to read us. And that imagery in verse 13 of laying naked and exposed, it's a little bit of an awkward picture. But it's actually, it's actually a really powerful example for what the scriptures can do for us. Is it's a moment where we take off the mask. The facade is ripped away. The the fake is taken away and everything is laid bare and everything is exposed so that we can truly see the reality of who we are as people. We can truly see the reality of of what it's like because here's the truth. God already knows what's true about you. He knows the realities about you. And if we are going to accept the grace of the Father, if we're going to accept the forgiveness and the life transformation that he is offering us, we've got to, we've got to quit playing games. We've got to quit pretending like those mess up, those things aren't there. And so we read the Bible because it has an undeniable power. It has an undeniable strength and transformative power in it. A couple of months ago, I, I came across the, an article. It's actually a dissertation that someone wrote. Once again, Bible nerd, right? So I came across this, this dissertation, this research document that these people had written that talk about the power of reading the Bible four or more times a week. And so the, the research is called The Power of the Four. And so if you guys want the, to read through this 20-some pages of research, feel free. Um, but I'm just going to give you some of the highlights of, of what happens in your life simply by adding the practice of reading the scriptures four or more times a week. Like in each of these people, that's the only thing that's changed. 
is they have read their Bible four or more times a week. There is something that happens when we read the scriptures a majority of the time. So let me just share a few, some of the, some of the research here for you. I put it up on the screen uh, so you can see this and not just glass over when you read numbers to us. Reading our Bible four times a, per week gives you significantly higher odds of giving financially to the church, plus 416%, discipling others, plus 231%, sharing your faith with others, plus 228%, simply by reading your Bible four or more times a week. Here's the next one. Is reading your Bible four or more times a week decreases your odds of struggling with these issues, feeling, feeling bitter, less than 40, 40% less, feeling destructive about yourself, 32% less, feeling like you have to hide what you do or what you feel, 31% less, feeling discouraged, 31% less, experiencing loneliness, 26% less, experiencing fear and anxiety, 14% less, simply by reading the scriptures four or more times a week. Here's the final one. Reading your Bible four or more times a week decreases your odds of giving in to these temptations, drinking to excess, 30, 62% less, viewing pornography, 40 or 59% less, having sex outside of marriage, 59% less, lashing out in anger, 31% less, gossiping, 28% less, neglecting family, 26% less, overeating or mishandling food, 20% less, mishandling money, 20% less. Reading your Bible four times a week is transformative or at least four times a week. Friends, there is an undeniable, unexplainable power that comes from the scriptures. So as people, man, it changes the way that we live. It changes everything in our lives. And so let me just encourage you as followers of Jesus live, to live as a faithful remnant today. Commit to, I'm going to read this, I'm going to read these scriptures at least four or more times a week. I would recommend seven times a week, but if you like the bare minimum, at least four times a week and allow God to transform you, allow God to change you. And our goal for doing all of this, our goal for reading the scriptures is knowing God better, living, loving him more. And it helps us as we do this to put the world in its proper place. And our goal is to see the world through the lens of the scriptures. Because we are never going to be able to, to interpret our world correctly unless we're looking through the correct lens. We're never going to be able to decipher it correctly. When I went, when I went to university, I took this, this really cool class. Not cool at all. It was a very fancy name, college algebra. And here was the problem. I took algebra in, in a secondary school. I took two years of algebra. I, uh, I was homeschooled, by the way, and I'm going to make a confession that I don't know if my mom even knew. I cheated my way through, college, or through Algebra 1 and Algebra 2. All, I found a website online that you could type in the equation and it would give you the answer. And so I'm like, cool! And I got, I got great grades in Algebra 1 and Algebra 2. I go into college algebra and I sit down and I open my book and I'm like, oh buddy, what is that, what is that number for? Or what is that, what is that symbol? I don't even know what that symbol is. And like the answer is like solve for X. I'm like, where is X? It's not even in here. Like, how am I supposed to know this? Like I had spent so much time without the lens to be able to decipher the algebra that like when it was time, like 
I didn't, I didn't have a clue what to do. Thankfully, my, my college algebra teacher was a, a follower of Jesus. And he was like, all right, Luke, you're going to be a really good pastor one day. So I'm going to pass you with the very lowest grade possible. Because at least you tried. All right, thank you, Dr. Reese. Okay, but like, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And here's the thing. It's the only way to accurately decipher culture is through the lens of Scripture. The only way that we're going to be able to see the lies of our world for what they are is if we have the truth of the Scriptures. In a world that is void of absolute truth, when we cling to the truth of the Scriptures, things become more clear. And we start to see things for the way that they are meant to be. How do we, how do we know something is a lie? We, we, we hold it up to the truth. And in Scripture, Satan is called the father of lies. So Satan is the father of lies. Our defense, what is our defense? It's truth. It's the word of God. Richard Foster, who is kind of a, a guru when it comes to like spiritual disciplines. Here's what he says, though. I think this is helpful. He says this. He says, the last thing advertisers and employers want for us is for you to think critically and deeply about how you live and how you op operate your own life. The last thing that our world wants is for us to actually think critically about what we're doing. And you guys have heard us said this, say this from all the time up here, is we are formed by something. Everything is forming our spirit. And so it's a question of what? And so what we're doing is we've developed these muscles. We have these cultural discernment. It forces us to ask the question, what is this book? What is this movie? What is this show? What is this relationship? What is this, this ad? What is this belief trying to teach me about God, about my value and my worth, about life, about success, about joy, fulfillment? We're asking all of these questions. What is this, whatever it may be, what is it trying to teach me? How is this attempting to form my spirit? And there are a ton of really bad examples of, of this, where shows or movies or books or even ads, whatever, that are trying to form us in a bad way. There is a good example. I'm going to share one good example. There's this TV show. It's technically for kids, but it's awesome. It's called Bluey. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Even if you don't have kids, highly recommend. Bluey is awesome. All right. But part of this show, what I love about Bluey is it's like it's eight to 12 minute like episodes, really short. And like, it's enjoyable for the kids to watch, but the people who, who, the creators of Bluey, they have hired child psychologists. They have hired different parenting advisors to help teach parents how to interact and how to play with their kids. And so every episode is showing like, here's a way that you could play with your kid. Here's a way that you could do this imagination thing. Here's a way that you could do that. And so every time you watch an episode, you leave there feeling with like an example of, of what it's like to interact with your kid. Their mission is for parents not to think that childhood is something to get through, but something to enjoy. So when I turn on Bluey, I am being formed in a, in a decent way, right? But then there's other things, man, that we turn on or we walk into and we are not being formed in a great way. There's an ad growing up. It was for Claritin, the, uh, an allergy medicine. And in the ad, like everything for the video was completely like gray, right? Because this was before you took the medicine. Everything was gray and it was drab and it wasn't really exciting or fun. It was blurry. 
until you took the medicine. Then the, the lens came off and everything was beautiful and clear. And like that's kind of a corny example for how every single ad works though, right? Our life is blurry, it is miserable, it is not as good as it should be until we take in whatever product it might be. Like that's the, that's the picture, right? And so we begin to, as people of Jesus, we begin to decipher these things. It's like, what is this trying to tell me? How is this trying to form me? And I do so by, by reading the scriptures. I do so because I'm connected and committed to hearing the truth of God's word. And here's the reality. One of the reasons the we want you to read the scriptures is not just because it's a good thing to do, but because of the one that it points us to, to the one that the scriptures are all about. There's this really helpful children's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. We've read through it with our girls about three times now. But like one of their, I'm just, just going to read you part of the introduction. And I just, I found this helpful for, for me. It says this. It says, the Bible isn't a book of rules, a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who came from a far-off country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy, fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and came, comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece of a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. This is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Every single story whispers his name. Why do we want to be people of the scriptures? Because it is pointing us to Jesus, to the one who comes and is rescued and saved us, to the one who walked into the wilderness, who faced temptation and succeeded on our behalf. That's why we, we read the scriptures. As we read the scriptures, we find out that, that Jesus is the true and the better Abraham. Or he's the true and the better Isaac, who was sacrificed by his father. And when Abraham gives the sacrifice, God says to Abraham, he says, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your own son from me. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, because we look to Jesus, and we look at the foot of the cross, and we say to God, Now I know how much you, have, you love me, because you did not withhold your own son from me. And so we read the scriptures because it teaches us the truth about ourselves, the truth about God, the truth about other people. And in John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd who is going to come and lay down his life for his lost sheep. And in John 10 verse 27, it says this, he says, my, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. We know the voice of our father. How do we know the voice of our Father? We've been listening to it for years. We follow after Him. We follow where He leads. And so we live as a faithful remnant, as people who are connected to the Scriptures, who are living out the truths of the Scriptures. Because if you were to, to put my kids in a room with about a dozen other kids, I would know when my kid cried 
Like I could sit, you, you guys have had conversations with me here, right? Like, hold on just a second. Okay, not my kid, it's fine. Like, and you're like, we know, you know our kids' cries, you know. We want to know the voice of our Father because we have listened to it time and time again. And when the moment arises, we're ready. We've been prepared. We've been walking in this moment, in this time for years. So let me pray for us. Father, we love you. God, we are just so grateful for the way that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. God, we thank you for the love story that the Bible is of a, of a passionate father with a never giving up love who's willing to move heaven and earth so that we could be made right. And Lord, I just pray as people of, of, of people who follow after you, God, help us to be people of your word. God, people who are, who are dialed into the truths of the scripture. God, our, our world may say that, that something, something is true. Our world may say that what's true is you have to earn yourself, earn your way to you. But God, what's truer is that you have, you've, you've done that for us. You've, you've made us into right relationship with you. So God, I pray that as we are people who read your word, Lord, I just pray that we don't just read it. We do what it says. God, this week, help us to be people who commit to reading your word and to living it out. God, I pray that you will give us the wisdom to understand your word and the courage to, to live it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.